Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. All right, let's talk a little college football. Yesterday was uh, some big news coming out of some big conferences for college football. The Big Ten was the first to announce that they were postponing their fall season, hope to get some games in in the spring. The Pac-12 uh, followed as well. We're talking about all fall sports here for these schools, uh, including football. Some other big conferences haven't heard from uh, yet. So let's get the latest on how this is uh, evolving here. Joe Nocera is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, he joins us on the phone. Joe, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, what are you taking away here from what some of these big Power Five conferences are doing here? There seems to be a little bit of split on kind of how they're viewing it. Oh, there's definitely a split. Um, I mean, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are out, at least till the spring. The SEC is definitely in. I mean, it would take, take a lot for the SEC <laughs> to not play football, as we well know. Um, and the other two conferences, the Big 12 and the ACC, they're kind of on the fence. ACC leaning towards playing. I mean, they're heavily being influenced by Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback for Clemson, who started the We Want to Play hashtag. Um, and, you know, it's just, it, we just don't know. I mean, I think, I think there's a decent likelihood that maybe two of the five conferences will try to play football. I think you could see also maybe a Nebraska or a Texas or an Oklahoma basically say, you know, hey, can we join up with you guys for a season because we want to play too? You can see that happening. Uh, it would be difficult, but uh, it's possible. And then the whole issue would be, you know, what happens with COVID? Uh, does the pandemic affect the teams? The, 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 I mean, football is not exactly social distancing. So, um, I mean, I think that's where we are right now. Yeah, and certainly the Big 12 is moving forward gung-ho. Sounds like it can't even understand the decision not to play. And yet in the Big 10, there were at least five athletes who had been infected who had contracted myocarditis, Joe, a potentially dangerous heart ailment. I mean, it doesn't bode well for those who continue to play if, if that's something that can be as easily contracted. Right. I think that's what really scared the Big 10 uh, much more than the act than, than, than COVID itself, because it is... I mean, it is true that most of these guys are young and they'll be either asymptomatic or, you know, they'll be sick for a couple of weeks and then they'll be fine. That is, that is true. But, but, but COVID has potential side effects. And if you have five of your athletes who have, you know, a dangerous heart condition after having COVID, you know, you can't really just say, okay, no big deal. We're going to keep playing because you're basically uh, affecting this kid's the rest of his life, potentially. So, uh, you know, it's hard to see how these other conferences are going to say, well, we don't have to worry about that, um, because if they start having those, those, those same problems, uh, how are they going to keep playing football? Joe, where's the NCAA on this? This seems like it's, you know, an area where the NCAA should be saying, okay, we're playing football or we're not playing football, as opposed to leaving it up to the individual conferences. Uh, the NCAA has surprisingly little um, authority over football. Uh, in 1984, there was a famous Supreme Court case in which the conferences won the right to take television rights away from the NCAA. Uh, 
And ever since then, the conferences have basically called their own shot in terms of football. The only thing the NCAA really does with football is, um, uh, you know, act as an enforcer when somebody's violating, you know, recruiting rules and so on. But they really have nothing to do with the college playoffs, with the bowl system, with anything like that. So it's not a surprise that the NCAA has been uh, has not had much to say about this. It's a little surprising that they haven't at least been vocal uh, about what they think should be done. Um, but the NCAA is in the same pickle that the, that, the, that the conferences are, which is that if games aren't played, television revenue isn't generated, and this whole edifice, this multi-billion dollar edifice, which is built on you know unpaid players generating <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars for schools and conferences in the NCAA, will crumble. And uh, one of the things I said in my column was, you know, maybe they can get away with not having fall sports, but if this has to get canceled again in spring, it will be a financial disaster for, for, mm. for athletic departments. And so, Joe, is there any idea or have you gamed out at all how it might work if one conference were to play and others didn't or if leagues joined up, you know, in some kind of new uh, tic-tac-toe of college football in order just to make it through this season so that they could hold on some of the funding? Would, would, would that mean some colleges would get funding and some wouldn't next time? Well, don't forget, all of these conferences have their own television deals. Mm. So, um, you know, if the Big Ten doesn't play, then they don't get the hundreds of millions of dollars that they would get from um, whoever whoever, uh, airs their games. You know, the SEC has its own. So, I mean, I could envision a scenario where the ACC and the SEC decide to play. So they're the only two conferences that play. And they play their games, and they get television money for that. And then they decide to have their own little mini championship between the winner of the ACC and the winner of the SEC. I could see that as a, as a plausible scenario. Um, I do think, though, that um, uh, the, the chances of the pandemic ultimately shutting college football down uh, is, is, is a higher likelihood, even after they like play one or two games. I think that's a higher likelihood. Um, just because it's going to look so bad if they have their athletes out there getting sick when everybody who's going to school, all the students, are you know socially distancing, washing their hands, wearing masks, doing all this stuff to say, stay safe. And these football players are out there grabbing each other, tackling each other, hitting each other, uh, the exact opposite of what you want to prevent COVID. Joe, are we still waiting on a formal decision by the SEC or the, and the ACC? And if so, when do we expect to get that? Well, the SEC has been very cagey about this, and, and they're, the, they're the ones that people are watching now. So Greg Sankey, the um, commissioner of the SEC, I mean, he basically said uh, when, when all this was happening the other day, I mean, he basically said, look, we're going to wait. We're in no hurry. If we can't start our season in September 10th, we'll start it on September 20th. If we can't start it on September 20th, we'll start it on October 4th. So his idea is he's not going to make a decision. He's going to keep everything as open as possible so that he can make whatever decision he has to make as late as possible. And I think you'll see the Big 12 and the ACC kind of follow the SEC's lead because, let's face it, the SEC yep. is, the, is the number one conference. 
Yeah, it's so interesting because many of these schools probably haven't even made decisions on whether they're going to have in-class teaching or not. Not that that really has much to do with college sports, but a little bit all the same. Joan O'Sara, thank you. You always pick the best <laughs> topics to go after when he's you write your Bloomberg guy. opinion columns. I know is is fantastic. Well, I think investors are trying to get a sense here uh, of where we are in this economic recovery. Have we troughed? Is the economy coming back? What's the shape of the recovery uh, that we can expect going forward? We welcome Carl Weinberg, founder and chief international economist for High Frequency Economics. I think Carl probably has some answers for us. So, Carl, again, I think people are trying to get a sense here um, as we deal with some additional flare-ups of the virus in certain key markets in the United States, such as California, Texas, and Florida. What does that mean for the economic recovery here? How are you kind of viewing the current state of affairs? Hi, well, good morning, Paul. Good morning, Bonnie. Uh, we view the state of affairs as being very, we view it very cautiously right now. Uh, we're concerned about renewed flare-ups. That's one thing. We're also concerned that the damage to the economy is greater than we are, than the market is currently pricing in and that we are currently perceiving. We don't think this economic crisis is nearly over yet. And any steps toward recovery so far are welcome, of course, but we still have a very, very long way to go to get back to where we were. Carl, does the market price this in at some point, or is the market sort of on a separate planet at this point? Well, you know, I've, I've been watching you all on Bloomberg TV, and, uh, and I'm listening on the radio, and this seems to be the question of the day. And I'll admit that I don't have anything other than an opinion about this, because we are in uncharted territory. We're looking at a bigger decline in the economy than we've ever experienced before in our lifetimes. And we should expect that we're going to get unusual and unexpected outcomes from being in that place. We can't tell, you know, in the area of unknown unknowns, we can't tell exactly what they're going to be, but things are going to break. And we're still just at the very beginning days of this, uh, of this downturn. You know, we're just a few months into it. So I think eventually the market will have to pay attention to the fundamentals. There will be a squeeze on the ways in which economics affects the markets. You know, the driver for profits, do profits affect the market? You know, the drivers for prices, do prices affect the markets? And, of course, the financial system is going to come under stress more than we're currently probably pricing in. So, yeah, Vani, eventually the piper has to be paid, but I'm not quite sure exactly when that will begin. All right, Carl. You know, we're, we, the Federal Reserve has been uh, really on the front lines of dealing with uh, the economic fallout from this pandemic, inject, injecting tremendous amounts of liquidity and, and very clear messaging. Uh, Congress, on the other hand, we had that third round of stimulus, $3.000 but the fourth round of stimulus, which many believe is still required, we're not seeing much movement on that. How critical is that to your, the calculus of kind of how you think about the economy and, and the potential recovery? Gosh, Paul, Rubila Faruqi, our chief U.S. economist at High Frequency Economics, writes about this every day. It's essential. There's no way to get around the fact that if we do not uh, continue the stimulus at a pace at or near what we've been doing, that we're going to see an immediate drop-off in incomes, an immediate drop-off in spending, with severe economic consequences on top of an already-hit economy. Uh, we can't say that often enough or loudly enough. 
Now, there's a question as to whether or not at some point we're going to have to face that kind of a fiscal cliff anyhow. But if it doesn't have to be faced right now and we can buy time to repair what's wrong with the economy, notably the virus itself and, and buying time until we can address uh, the disease and get it under control, um, then, uh, you know, there may come a day when we do have to go off that cliff. But if we can avoid it now, that would be great. Carl, you're a specialist in China, obviously, as well, and we love talking to you about China. I'm curious as to where that conversation goes. It sort of took a right turn with this TikTok bite dance argument. Um, you know, we obviously have been pre- prepping for something on the company side of things with China, whether it be chip companies, broadband companies or what have you. But suddenly we're in different territory now, it seems. Well, I agree with you, Vani. This is, uh, I think of it more as an extension of a slippery slope that we engaged uh, in three years ago uh, when the Trump administration started exercising its options on trade policy. And relations with China have now decayed to a level lower than they've been uh, since we started relationships with China in the early 1970s. Um, I don't see a good outcome if things continue in the direction that they are going in. And frankly, I don't see good positive results coming from the direction that the Trump administration has taken us on. We have started a confrontation uh, with somebody, with, a, with, an, with an opponent who is equally powerful and agile as we are. And we would all be much better off if everybody could embrace the things that we can accomplish together and not try to change the things that make us different from them, speaking in their specifically political systems and so forth. What's your base case, Carl? And we're almost out of time, unfortunately, but does this all change if the, the presidency becomes a Joe Biden presidency? And if not, do we start seeing the splitting up of all Chinese American companies or partnered companies? Well, I think that we're headed toward a split-up strategy right now. I can't predict what the Biden administration will do. My guess is that they will be tough on China, but tough in a constructive way, looking, as Richard Nixon uh, pointed out uh, when he went to China for the first time, looking for the things we can accomplish together and accept the fact that we have fundamental differences in worldviews and politics, live with those differences, accept what we can change, and take advantage of the things we can do together. I think that's the winning strategy, and I'm hopeful that uh, Biden administration will be tough, but forward-looking in its policies. Carl, thank you for joining us. We will speak to you again very soon. That is Carl Weinberg, founder and chief economist at High Frequency Economics. All right, as we know, gold has been on a little bit of a ride in the last couple of months, especially when things looked uncertain. Gold actually topped $2,000 an ounce. If we look today, we're off of those highs, but nevertheless... People obviously considering gold a store of value once again and one that they should take a second or third look at. Let's bring in somebody who knows all about gold. Frank Holmes joins us now. And uh, Frank, it is great to have you because if anybody knows about gold, it is you. Is the peak past for gold prices right now? No, Vani, not at all. If you look at the past 18 months is when the Golden Cross took place, where the 50-day crossed above the 200-day. And, and gold has had this nice steady run up about $700, and it goes through a correction. And during this run, it's had um, something like six times it's moved up one standard deviation, which means for your listeners that it's as volatility that can happen by surging 6% over, over three months. Uh, and three times it's gone up two standard deviations over six months, and then it corrects. It goes through these corrections. So 
I think we're up two standard deviations. We're due for a correction, which would be healthy uh, in this great run, this bull market that we're seeing in bullion. And I don't think it was going away because of the unprecedented G20 printing of money. The, it's, it's a collective group of finance ministers and central banks that are, that are fighting World War III, which is the coronavirus, and they're all working together, and it's a lot of money printing, and it's currency debasement, and you see that in history, gold starts to rise in each of those mm-hmm. countries' currencies. Frank Holmes, CEO and Chief Investment Officer for U.S. Global Investors uh, with us. Frank, st- the gold traded off about 10% yesterday. What was that? Was that a technical trade? Was that a big seller coming on the market? What do you make of that trade? Yeah, I think it could be a big seller. I, I, when it comes to these types of trades, I really try to be agnostic and just look at statistics of uh, volatility. And whenever it's up two standard deviations over 60 trading days, it's a 95% probability of a drop of 6% to 10%. Okay. And uh, we got it. Yeah, and gold stocks are even more severe from their, their peaks. Uh, they'll be two times that rate. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. What do you make of the performance of the gold miners recently? Obviously, Barrick is one that we've been we've been focused on. G O L D is the ticker symbol, and it, it had a nice run up this year, Frank. Well, it's the big market cap. You know, they and Newmont are the two big uh, 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 elephants in the room, and uh, and and they have been marketing themselves as having free cash flow. What's really important is in this run now. And the first time was in March that we saw in over a decade that the 100 gold producers that we follow had a free cash flow yield. It's not happened. Mm. The S&P has always had a free cash flow yield. What does that mean? It means they can pay dividends. Yeah. Uh, they can buy back their stock. And so after the coronavirus hit in March, then the S&P fell to a negative free cash flow yield. The gold stocks went up. So all of a sudden you started seeing the non-traditional gold or a stock buyer buying gold stocks because they have free cash flow. But is the run over, I suppose, is what I'm saying. I mean, if, if you have GLD no, up almost 50... No, no, <laughs> no, no. No, because let's take a look when Greenspan left. Greenspan left, the federal balance sheet was 6% of the GDP. Now with Powell, you know, in all these crises, it's over 30%. Uh, when we go back and look at when President Obama came in, uh, the Federal Reserve, they had to spend something like $3 trillion to inflate their balance sheet. And three years later, gold went from 800 to uh, 1900 uh, If you looked at the growth in the balance sheet today, uh, that easily forecasts the next three years gold to go to 4000 uh, And if you looked at inflation-adjusted numbers, uh, it's also... $3,400 gold. So I think that um, this is fascinating to me to watch that gold is starting to become its own. It is the fourth most liquid asset class in the world, but it's becoming the sort of source of an additional investment. And we saw 18 months ago, new country central banks, Hungary, uh, Poland, uh, Colombia, emerging market countries buying gold as a part of the foreign currency. I don't think that's going away. Frank, how about silver? What do we do there with that one? That's the great speculator. You know, um, it, it, it's, it's like a warrant 
on, on gold. Okay. Uh, and it always has a 50% more volatility, both up and down. Uh, gold had a big run. Silver was lagging. And all of a sudden, it surges. Uh, There's a whole audience of, of community of investors saying the ratio of gold to silver is too cheap. So they started buying it. And, uh, and we had this big pickup. But the long-term range is like 60, 50 to 60 times silver to gold. And that's why you saw silver had this big run. But any correction, silver historically corrects more. Frank, we're almost out of time, but how has the emergence of Bitcoin, Ethereum and all these other sort of cryptocurrencies affected the trade in gold? Well, the, the, the audience of people that really speculate in Ethereum and Bitcoin, they're that millennial investors. And, and that's a great question, Bonnie, because we have experienced in our Jets ETF a billion dollars came in uh, during the crisis, uh, 70 straight days, and Eric Buchanan has talked about it several times, came into this ETF, uh, and predominantly we saw uh, Robinhood investors coming in yep. uh, well before the airlines took off. We're seeing it in GoAU. So uh, these millennials used to trade Bitcoin and Ethereum, <laughs> uh, and now they're trading stocks. Mm. And now ETFs. they're trading stocks, yep. Absolutely. We're seeing the, the Robin Hood traders coming into the market. Frank Holmes, CEO and CIO of U.S. Global Investors. We always appreciate uh, your uh, perspective on precious metals, gold, silver, uh, even Bitcoin a little bit, perhaps as a store of value, some are suggesting. The U.S. Postal Service is in trouble. In fact, most recently, the Treasury actually prepared a $10 billion credit line for the U.S. Postal Service. And at the time, the Treasury Secretary said, while the USPS is able to fund its operating expenses without additional borrowing at this time, we are pleased to have reached an agreement on the material terms and conditions of a loan should the need arise. It's all very fragile. Let's bring in somebody who can tell us a lot more. Satish Jindal is president, owner, founder of SJ Consulting. And Satish, it's great to speak with you. Is the USPS in danger of failing? No, I think uh, the new CEO that has just taken over, Louis DeJoy, I have had the pleasure of working with him in the past when he was CEO of New Breed. He's a very quick study, very action-oriented, uh, and he's going to be a, having the opportunity to fix a lot of areas of shortcomings in the post office, one of them being that they are a very big partner of the Amazon and other carriers in parcel shipping. The volume in the months of April, May, and June was up 49%, two times that of UPS and FedEx. And I fully expect him to leverage that kind of increase to get some rate increases that will help the revenue increase at the post office. So, Satish, there's been some concern. I guess Postmaster DeJoy uh, had a new organization chart kind of uh, in, uh, implemented recently. A lot of executives were displaced, including uh, two of the top executives overseeing day-to-day -day operations. And I know some Democrats have suggested that maybe that's deliberate sabotage to disrupt mail service on the eve of the election. Uh, and with an election that's going to really depend upon mail-in ballots. Is that a valid concern in your mind? Not at all. I know some of the people who are still there. Dave Williams, he's in charge of the operations. Jack Straco in charge of some of the sales and marketing. They are very seasoned, very skilled, experienced people. And I do not see this being in any way compromising the quality of service, the speed of it. And in fact, he's streamlining it to make it happen quicker and better. 
And we even track on-time performance of first class and priority mail. And the month of July shows no decline over the prior month. So uh, I do not anticipate anything to compromise the quality of postal service. Satish, though, I mean, one of the... One of the things that the USPS had over other services was that last mile, right? Which was also its Achilles heel because the last mile is the most expensive. It's it's the most annoying. It's the most difficult. And, you know, you are promising that you will, you know, have that package at that door on a certain day. So you just have to be there. If other services, you know, even Uber is, you know, fantastic on on GPS and location and that kind of thing. If those services start doing last mile, does that jeopardize USPS? No way. No company has ability to compete in terms of the cost of last mile delivery and the uh, presence that they have. They go to every address every day. No company has that capability. And you'd mention about Uber and Lyft. They are nowhere close to even UPS and FedEx, and they can't do it as cost-effectively as the post office does. And that's validated by UPS has a service called SurePost, which is where they handle most of the last-mile B2C packages, and they are delivered by post office for UPS. All right, so Satish, as we take a look at the U.S. Postal Service as a entity here, talk to us about the financial condition that it's in right now uh, and, and kind of what needs to be done in terms of investment going forward. The area where I think post office can rapidly improve its financial conditions from an operating point of view. Keep in mind what the public sees are financials that include the retirement uh, payments that they have to make. We nearly take that out because they are asked to do something that no private company does. If you look at it on an operating basis, they have a huge opportunity to leverage their parts of services for increases. A simple example being that during the peak, the volumes increased by 30, 40, 50 percent. UPS has already announced they're going to charge an extra dollar for the delivery of those packages that actually are being done by the post office. The post office should be getting that extra dollar and they should be putting a surcharge for the peak, and it will be hundreds and millions of dollars for them. So what kind of surcharge should customers expect to see? Because we've really sort of had it good, and people complain every time the price of a stamp goes up, Satish, but, you know, honestly, it's not that much to send something via USPS. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) First-class mail-in perspective. We have done extensive study. When you look around the world, and look at other developing countries. Take example of Germany. The size of Germany is one-fifth or less than that of USA, without including Alaska and Hawaii. And yet, their first-class mail is about 30-40% more expensive than ours. And I would tell you that for an average housewife or a household, an increase of postage by 10-15 cents will hardly be felt by them. It is the big mailers like Capital One. You may see how many mails packages they send you every week, but they will have to pay more and let them pay more because they will ship less and that will be better for you and me and the post office. How is the U.S. post office going to do during this election season? Again, it looks like there's going to be a much, much higher than average mail-in vote. Uh, How do you think the post office will perform? Can it stay out of the politics of it? I do not see any challenges for them to not be able to handle that volume. Keep in mind that the first-class mail, especially the ones that are in simple envelope, 
they go through a sortation system that moves so fast that if you got your finger in it, it will cut your finger off. And that speed of handling first-class mail is so well set up that they can have a 30 40% increase in those mailers that they're going to get, 100% increase in the votes that come in through that. And maybe it'll take a day more, but that still is not something to be concerned about. Satish Jindal, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate getting your thoughts on the Postal Service front and center here. It's getting a little bit politicized, but it'll certainly be an important player in this upcoming election. Satish Jindal, president, SJ Consulting, based in Pennsylvania, joining us here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.